welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip hop culture to the next level. Today's episode is all about Interscope Records. It has been one of the most influential record labels since it was started in 1990. This record label has been home to Dr. Dre, Eminem, 50 Cent, Lady Gaga, Olivia Rodrigo, and countless other names in between. So we talked about what made Death Row Records want to partner with a company like Interscope and what made Interscope succeed time and time again. So we talk about the business model of being able to sell controversy and why that worked well, especially in the 90s. We also talk about leadership and how important it is to have people at the helm that understand what's needed and how that continued to help Interscope time and time again. We also talk about some of the challenges that Interscope has had and how they're able to navigate that too. And in this episode, very similar to the cash money one that we did a couple months ago, Zach and I, that's Zach O'Malley-Greenberg, you may know him from his work back when he was at Forbes as the entertainment editor there, and from the books he's written, like Three Kings and Empire State of Mind, we talked about a number of things and answered several questions that we talked about in the Cash Money episode as well. What was the biggest signing? What were the best business moves that were made? What was the dark horse move? What are the missed opportunities? How did this record label handle transitions? And who is the biggest winner overall from the success of Interscope Records, which is now Interscope Geffen A&M Today, one of the umbrella labels under Universal Music Group. This is a really fun episode to do, and we're going to do more of them. So let us also know if you have any suggestions on other ones you want us to do at the end of the episode, and we'll go from there. Here's our breakdown on Interscope Records. Hope you enjoy it. This episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Dice, where fans can experience more of the shows they love. Buying concert tickets can be exhausting. It's easy to miss your favorite artists when they're in town, and fans have to watch for hidden fees and resellers who drive up ticket prices, all while hoping one of their friends can attend. You deserve better as a fan. On Dice, you can find quality live shows tailored to you. DICE will tell you what's happening in your area and offer a personalized selection of shows. Artists love to partner with DICE because they provide complete and fair experience with fans through their waiting list technology that locks tickets to smartphones. Plus, DICE's robust analytics helps artists better understand their audience. Venues and promoters love DICE because their data-driven tools, customer service, and direct connection to fans across the world make it the place to buy and sell tickets. Want to learn more? Check out Dice at Dice.fm. That's D-I-C-E dot F-M. Today's episode is a breakdown on one of the most storied record labels of the past few decades, Interscope Records, and we're back to break it down with my guy, Zach O'Malley-Greenberg. Zach, welcome back, man. Thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, I knew that this was a topic that was near and dear to you, given the work you covered in the space as well. This is one of the more interesting record labels been following their work for years. And just to just kick things off, this record label starts 1990, right at the beginning of a new wave for music. And since it's come out, would you say that this is the most successful record label, individual record label that we've seen in music since then? I mean, it's certainly hard to think of another one that's been more reliably at the top, right? I mean, and I think the thing that really sets Interscope apart is it's not like 
you know, the label was made off of just one act or two acts or three acts. They just have a track record of continuing to find, you know, artists that push the envelope that, you know, break records and that end up at the top of the music scene and, you know, kind of across genres and eras too. So, you know, and really even across chief executives, which is, I think, pretty unusual. So uh, I think there's some kind of secret sauce in there and can't wait to dig into it with you. Yeah, I think it, in terms of the longevity, in terms of the phases they've gone through, whether it's dominating in hip hop, dominating in pop, dominating in rock, they've been able to do it across genres, across decades. The one record label that I do think could also be worth mentioning in this respect is Republic Records. Started a few years after 1995, but I think there's a few things there too as well. The consistency and the ability to do consistent deals, win challenging bid wars and get some of the top artists. So I do think it would probably have to be one of those two, but from a time frame perspective, just all of what Interscope was able to do even before things got started at Republic, do give them an edge. If we're talking past 25 years, that's probably another discussion, but past 30, 32 years, I think Interscope is probably there. I think there's also maybe a case to be made for Columbia or a case to be made for Atlantic as well. But I do think that Interscope, especially just with the way that they went about things a little differently, which we'll get into, but I feel like they have a strong advantage there. Yeah. For sure. And I think, you know, particularly when it comes to the sort of entrepreneurial spirit, you know, and, and we've talked about Cash Money and Def Jam and, you know, Rockefeller, certainly hip hop specific record labels that have been uniquely entrepreneurial, you know, especially given some of their leadership. But like, I think for a label that, you know, kind of delves into pop so much and of course, Interscope, obviously, you know, huge home for hip hop, too. But to have that entrepreneurial streak outside of a mostly hip hop label, I think that's pretty unusual too. And some of the things they've done around beats, which we can get into, you know, j just, you know, being almost, you know, like a venture fund or an incubator as much as a record label in some ways. I think that's another way that Interscope has been, you know, really different from the rest. Yeah, for sure. That beats thing. We'll get into that one in a minute. I feel there's so much to dive into there, but let's start with a quick backstory. I'm sure a lot of folks already know this, but there are three main figures that were involved with the beginning of this record label. You have Jimmy Iovine, you have Ted Fields, and you have John McClain. So let's first start with Jimmy. So as many of you know, this was someone that was a record producer. It started as that, worked with legendary artists in music, whether it was John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, and several others. And with that, he was able to carve out a lane, figure out what works for him, and I know that now the jump from producer to executive may not seem like it's that much, but back in 1890, there were a lot of question marks around whether or not this record producer guy could run a business. Could he be an executive and make the decisions and call the shots? And there were a lot of things that Jimmy did that may seem conventional, but there were a lot that were seen unconventional. But I do think that him having the partnership with others helped craft Interscope to where it is today. And Ted Fields is one of those one of those people where the name comes from. So, yeah, Zach, tell us a little bit about Ted and some of his work. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it was this was at this point over thirty years ago, but you know, I was five years old. But and kind of looking back on it now, I mean, it seems to me the way these things go, like Ted Field was kind of the money guy, Jimmy was the industry guy. And, you know, Ted Field was one of the heirs of the Marshall Field fortune. He had been involved in film production and like race cars and all kinds of things that heirs to 
fortunes are often involved in, which are maybe not as lucrative as Interscope Records turned out to be, but interesting nonetheless. He was a producer on Revenge of the Nerds and some other really interesting films. But yeah, in 1990, he came along, basically thought of Interscope Records as a division of his film company. And he brought on, he teamed up with Jimmy. I think they were actually introduced by the manager of U2. And David Geffen was sort of involved in negotiations along the way. And it was like kind of a who's who of the music world, you know, at kind of the cusp of the 1990s there. And so he came in, he brought on John McClane to run Interscope at first. So John McClane is like one of these people who's incredible. He might be the most influential person in music who nobody's ever heard of, unless you know, you know. John McClain was critical in Janet Jackson's success. He's also now become the co-executor of the Michael Jackson estate, you know, really since MJ died, along with John Branca, who's sort of the public face of it. But, you know, John McClain, if you want to, like, try to find a picture of John McClain. I mean, this guy is so under the radar, but he's so deeply in the mix. I don't really know how he manages to avoid the spotlight quite as much as he does, but you know, obviously contributes a ton of expertise and is a true power player behind the scenes in the music business. So, you know, you kind of, you kind of put that dream team together and then you have sort of the ingredients for, you know, the beginning of what we now know as Interscope Records. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up Geffen earlier because when this started, a lot of people looked at Geffen as the model for what this could be, but also how Interscope went about things differently. Geffen's whole thing when he had started Geffen Records was who are the established artists that he could go after again, whether it was Elton John or a few other folks that they were able to really secure. Because at the time, the thought was you want to have the proven people on your roster because it's so hard to be able to build that from the ground up. So not only is Jimmy and the team already going into this with people that don't traditionally have strong music experience in terms of running a music company, at least in late 80s, early 90s, but you also have them trying to do it completely with new artists and going in from a new perspective. And this was part of one of the things that I think helped set them apart because they leaned into genres and aspects of genres that other folks avoided. So of course... In the early days of Interscope, they focused more so on rock music. That's what Jimmy was known for. And you had artists, I think their first hit was Rico Suave. They had had <laughs> some stuff with Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. So you started to see a little bit of more interesting ways to go about stuff. But then they also had Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson. So you got a vibe for the fact that this wasn't just rock music. They were in many ways going after that shock value. Like what was the thing that was somewhat controversial, but there was a the controversial stuff that did sell and was resonating and they were able to take risks that others weren't and it worked out to their advantage. Absolutely. And, you know, another executive who deserves mention is Tom Whaley, who came over from, I think it was, he was a Capitol and A&R there. And, you know, he was the one who originally signed Tupac in, I think, 1991. So that was like way before Tupac was a mainstream success. He was really getting in early, you know, the seed round of Tupac, if you will. And uh, digital <laughs> underground know. era Tupac. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, whereas maybe Geffen was more of like a Series B kind of fund, you know, looking for Series B and C kind of sure things. You know, I think Interscope was really willing to get in there early. And right, they didn't really care if somebody was controversial. And I think... I think Jimmy, I think that was part of his genius was being able to tell like, you know, we shouldn't shy away from controversy. And in fact, you know, as, as long as it's 
not uh, crossing certain lines, controversy can actually be good for a record label because it generates publicity. And, you know, certainly as Jimmy got deeper and deeper in, you know, into the hip hop world, you know, I think he followed that strategy pretty closely. Yeah. And I think this speaks to something that worked effectively in business in the 90s as well. There was almost this monetization of pearl clutching. If that makes sense, what yeah, is going to yeah. make people actually be like, oh, did so-and-so just say that? And yeah. that's why MTV was able to reach heights in the late 80s and early 90s that VH1 necessarily didn't at the time. And that's why Interscope was able to do things other labels weren't. And then I think similarly, even look at gaming back in the day, you look at a company like Sega and the types of games they were willing to release on a console like the Sega Genesis, they were taking risks that Nintendo didn't want to take. And I think we actually saw Sony continue to do that. So I feel like there was this ethos of that in the 90s from the get-go and Interscope was willing to go there where others weren't. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I, I think it's also just interesting to know that I think a lot of people look at the Tupac saga and they think about, you know, there's this whole, and we can get into this later, the whole Suge Knight and bailing him out of jail and all that. But he was already in the Interscope family, you know, years before that. So right. it all kind of comes together. Oh, definitely. And I think with that, it's time to talk about one of the most important things that does set the stage for this record label in general. It's the partnership with Death Row Records and signing them to the deal that they did. So it's funny because I think that when a lot of people think of hip hop artists signing deals and getting ownership, we often hear about cash money. We often hear about Master P and No Limit, but Death Row was able to do something quite similar and have that type of arrangement with Interscope as well. It was a distribution deal. And for as notorious as Suge Knight is for his bully tactics, and that's probably a light way to put it in terms of how he goes about his business. He was very adamant about what they owned, and they were able to use a few hundred thousand dollar investment on their end, largely gotten from some money that Suge Knight didn't get that he was owed from a vanilla ice deal, and that becomes a start to Death Row Records. And they sat on the chronic for over a year until they found the right company, and the right company ended up being Interscope to partner with. All I remember is that Dre came in to play us the chronic. I said, who recorded this for you? He said, me. I said, wow, this guy will define Interscope. Yeah, and you know, I think that, you know, there's the old story of like when Jimmy first heard Dre and Snoop together on a track, he's like, these guys are like Mick and Keith. Just, you know, they're just, just a different genre. But he saw it immediately, right? He saw the like behind the scenes musical guy, you know, and the sort of like the forward facing storyteller, the performer, and he saw a formula that worked in rock and that would work in hip hop. And I think in many ways, you know, Jimmy was genre agnostic, right? It didn't really matter that this was hip hop or that was rock. The point was the formula works and it, it works in whatever genre you put it forward. And so at one of my other favorite Jimmy stories was, I don't remember which song this was. What was it? It was maybe it was off the chronic or doggy style and that he couldn't get the radio stations to play it because it was too obscene or whatever. And so he just bought like 30 second or 60 second slots, or maybe he bought like full three minute slots on drive time in LA, just terrestrial radio and just played the song. And people didn't realize that it was an ad and they just, they loved the song and they started calling the radio stations requesting it. And that's how they rocketed it to the top, which do you remember what song that was? I'm trying to think. Of course the listeners are going to, Oh yeah. Someone's going to come back and ping us about it. Yeah. Yeah. 
But I just, I love that story. And it's just like classic Jimmy Iovine, you know, guerrilla marketing, you know, and it works. And I think also, you know, to your earlier point, like monetizing the pearl clutching, the best way to get somebody to want something is to tell them they can't have it. Right. I mean, so whoever's mom is like clutching their pearls, but the kid is like, wait a minute, my mom is freaking out and I can't have this record. Like, what is this record that I can't have, even if they didn't know what it was, you know? And I think in a funny way, like that era, you know, the whole parental advisory sticker, I mean, that became like, you know, like almost a badge of honor. Oh yeah. It was a marketing you know? point at that point. Yeah, exactly. And you see that, you know, obviously throughout music, but even to draw parallels with basketball, which as we get into talk about beats by Dre, you know, I think there are a ton of them, but like, one of the reasons that Air Jordan did so well early on was because they were like fining Jordan for wearing them. And this was a big story. You know, he was kind of like breaking the rules by wearing, because, you know, the sneakers they had to be like white in the NBA, the white sneakers, and you could only have a certain percentage with color on them. And like the Jordans were 50% red or something. And this was like a big problem and, you know, resulting in fines. But Nike decided to just pay the fines and take the publicity. And I think that sort of attitude is the one that was, you know, adopted by Jimmy and, you know, by Enderscope more broadly throughout. Yeah. Great story. And I think that speaks a lot to both the blessing and to be honest, in some ways, the curse of Jimmy, what Jimmy's great at and some of Jimmy's challenges as well, because from a leadership perspective and from the risk-taking perspective, he was always willing to go there and spend the money to make the things happen, right? Whether it was taking a less lucrative deal to work with Death Row because you're working with Death Row. What you're able to put out, right? Three of their first four albums they put out are classics. You have The Chronic, you have Doggy Style, you have the Above the Rim soundtrack. They just came so strong. And even that moment when they're able to have that cover on Vibe, that is just such an infamous cover of, you know, the three main artists and Shug together. No one else can really do that. And that's why that does stay as strong as it is. But with that, Jimmy also did get a lot of criticism for overspending and not necessarily having as many checks of balances in place. A lot of people felt that, you know, Doug Morris, who this was a little bit later, but Doug Morris, who was leading Universal at the time, pretty much gave him a green light to do a lot of the things he wanted to do. And I remember in the 90s, he had signed Tom Jones, which was in many ways a bit antithetical to like how he's been running the business so far to spend the money on an act like that. And then even some of the things later on with Apple Music, and I mean, that's a whole nother conversation, but it's the way that the money was spent worked well when it worked well, but then things don't work out. Everyone has, you know, the criticism ready and some, some businesses that can work well, but in other businesses, it can be a little bit challenging. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think as with many businesses, though, if you spend a lot of money and you spend it, you know, intelligently, or at least, you know, in the right direction, maybe you overspend a little bit. If you spend in the right direction, you know, the, the rewards accrue to you. And, you know, I, I don't know if I'm getting too ahead of myself here, but just while we're on the topic of controversy, you know, it's just the whole corporate history of Interscope. It started off as a, it eventually was a joint venture between Time Warner and then Field and I have been, and in 1995, after all this controversy with some of the lyrics and, you know, Dolores Tucker, you know, and all Time Warner divested, sold its half of the company to Field and Ivy for 150 million bucks. And then a year later, they just turned around and, and sold that half for 200 million back to Seagram. And, you know, so they made a tidy little 75, 85 million dollars in like a year 
you know, after having their hand forced by this controversy. So it's just kind of funny how that all works out. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. But I think we could get into some of the categories now because some of this probably fits there with that too. At least I'd say the biggest signing here, I think the biggest signing, there's a number of them in Interscope's 30 plus year history, but I think it has to be this death row deal. I think the death row deal because it kind of paves the way for everybody else. But I would say though, if there were a single artist that, you know, sort of if you had to pick one artist to define Interscope, I'd probably go with Eminem. I mean, just in terms of like, the overall, the controversy, the evolution, the sales. I mean, you know, just nobody can touch Eminem from a sales perspective, you know, certainly when it comes to hip hop over the past, you know, a couple decades and, you know, just all of the kind of the good and the bad and everything that came together. I mean, you know, but that doesn't happen unless you have death row. It doesn't happen unless you have Dr. Dre. I mean, you know, if you say like what artist was most critical to Interscope overall, like on a broader kind of like, holistic spectrum i'd probably go with dre but as far as signing i don't know it'd be hard to top eminem in my book yeah i think eminem is a good counter there because this is kind of like the cash money conversation we had then right do you yeah. say that it's Lil Wayne or do you say it's drake and right. it actually right. is drake from a pure numbers perspective but obviously drake doesn't happen without Lil Wayne and the same thing is here with dre and eminem and then everything else there and eminem is specifically because I think even if you looked at the 2010s, he's still probably up there in terms of the most commercially successful artist. He's already number one in the 2000s. He was already pretty high up from the 90s, just given the work that he did in the late 2000s. And his, in 2022, his greatest hits album was the most popular rap album in the UK. And this is an album that's 17 years old, a greatest hits album. And then you just look at the streaming numbers I'm pretty sure he has two of the three most streamed songs of the 2000s being Lose Yourself and Till I Collapse, which wasn't even like a big single at the time, but ended up being a staple on workout playlist. So, yeah. And he's remained relevant in a way. I mean, I think if you walk down the street and you ask the average, you know, 15 year old, they'll know who Eminem is and they might not know who Dr. Dre is. Which is wild to say, but right? which is wild. Yeah. It's crazy, but I, <laughs> yeah. but I think it's also true for better or worse. So, What's the best business move Interscope's done? I think it might be cheating a little bit because it was part Interscope and it was also part Universal more broadly, but I would go with Beats, right? Just, you know, by way of background, for those who don't know the full story, you know, uh, Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre founded Beats in, gosh, what was it, 2008, something like that? Yep, Oh eight. But like from the very beginning, you know, the story goes that they're like walking down the beach in Malibu and Dre has some kind of sneaker deal on the table. And he says, you know, Jimmy, should I take this sneaker deal? And Jimmy goes, you know, like F sneakers, let's sell speakers. And so that's how Beats was born. Is that exactly how it went down? You know, we'll never know, but it's a great story. And, you know, to kind of tie it back to what we were talking about earlier with Air Jordan, they really did follow the Air Jordan playbook in a lot of ways. And when I wrote my book, Three Kings, which was about Dre, Diddy, and Jay-Z, the Dre section really focused a lot about, you know, beats and sort of how Dre set up this business and everything with Jimmy. And, you know, I actually went to the former CEO of Best Buy and I said, how did you sort of like get kids to pay 200 bucks for a pair of headphones when like they had been paying 200 bucks for sneakers before? And, and he said, well, we very consciously told our salespeople when somebody walks in, you got to tell them like, you know, you're competing with 
Jordan, not Bose. You know, you're going to tell that kid like, you know, this headphone set is like more interesting for your wardrobe than that pair of sneakers or, you know, like that's how you're going to really kind of win and create a category, not just sort of become the best player in an old category. And I think that was like the brilliant thing that they did. But the way that they got it to happen was they got full buy-in from Interscope and from the parent company, Universal. And actually, Universal invested a pretty big chunk of money into Beats so that, you know, I think, gosh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I think when Apple finally bought them out in 2014, I think Jimmy and Dre had 25 to 30% each. I think Universal had something like 20%. Braun had a little bit and Will I Am, but you know, the fact that Universal was bought in, that Interscope was bought in, and that Jimmy was able to get them to put Beats headphones in like every single, I don't remember if it was Interscope video or all Universal videos. I think it might've just been Interscope. Yeah, they had them in Interscope because like they had them in like Gaga videos and like she would wear them and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, it's brilliant. Like what a brilliant move. So, you know, off of the two that, whatever they put into it, and I mean, a lot of that was free, right? They just put in, you know, their own free product placement and have to do anything and they help build this, you know, build beats into this $3 billion company. And so, you know, I don't know how the high is sort of divided, but it ended up being, you know, worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to the sort of universal interscope family. And then, you know, also, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for Jimmy and Dre. So there are a lot of great signings. I'm sure they made a ton of money off of Eminem and all these other artists, but like, it's really hard to top that one. And they just really knew how to do it. They really knew how to, I mean, Jimmy, you know, yeah, again, it's a perfect partnership. Dre is this perfectionist artist and Jimmy's the marketer. And I remember, man, it must've been like 2010 or 2011. I got invited to this like launch of some new beats thing for New York media only. And, you know, there were like 30 people there and it was Jimmy and Dre and they're kind of like standing around in this big conference room and, you know, Jimmy was just like talking and yakking it up and telling stories. And he told the story about the walking down the beach and, you know, sneakers or speakers and Dre's just kind of nodding and, you know, chiming in occasionally, but like that was their deal. You know, Jimmy, Jimmy was the talker and and Dre was the, you know, the, the quiet genius artist. And that was a pretty potent formula. Yeah. That was my answer too. Beats has to be the best deal. All the reasons you mentioned as well. They also saw a huge opportunity with speakers as well, because at this point, the predominant way that so many people were listening to music were those cheap white iPhone headphones or the iPod headphones, I should say, at the time that people were listening to. And I remember Jimmy was adamant about how poor the sound quality was coming out of them, especially given how much focus there was in the 90s around surround sound and both speakers and all this stuff and sound shifted to these very cheap plastic headphones that just came for free in the iPod cases. So them putting a bit more money into the technology there, granted, there were other companies that did come through and really expand further. And that's how we're able to have products like the AirPod Pro Maxes, which are now several hundred dollars more than Beats ever were because Beats was considered to be expensive at that point. And now people will buy those like it's nothing, the same way that people will buy Yeezys like it's nothing. So that other point about category creation, not just building within an existing area, was key there. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting, you know, Jimmy clearly looked up to Steve Jobs a lot and, you know, took cues from Steve Jobs creating the iPod, right? I mean, that was a very, like he created the iPod. It was a music thing that helped 
basically revive Apple and, and get it on the track that it is today. And, you know, I don't think there's an iPhone if there's no iPod, but you know, how did they get the iPod to be so sexy? It was like, it was those YouTube, YouTube commercials with the like, hello, hello, it's got a place called Vertigo, you know, and everybody's dancing and, and the crappy white, you know, earbuds with the, you know, cords and everything, you know, that was like, that was the creation of a category. And, you know, I think that, Jimmy looked at that and he thought, gosh, you know, I could do something like that. And, and I think he always thought it would be a great fit for Apple, but Steve Jobs, you know, while he was alive, it, I think he kind of thought he could do it all himself and he didn't really want to be involved in, you know, in that side of the business. So I think it's why it wasn't until after Steve was gone that, you know, Apple came in and bought Beats. But yeah, I remember reporting on that deal when it happened and it happened at the worst. I was like, I had just gotten on a a flight to like go to Italy for vacation with my wife. And I woke up at 7am when we landed or whatever. And, and I had like 70 texts and it, you know, it's like be, while I was over the Atlantic ocean beats, I got and sold to Apple. And that video came out with Dre saying how he was, you know, the new King of the Forbes list and the Forbes list just changed. They need hey, it came out like two weeks ago. They need to update the Forbes list. Shit just changed in a big way. Oh my! Understand that? Oh my! The first billionaire in hip hop, right here from the motherfucking West Coast. Believe it. And so I just said to my wife, I was like, "Honey, we're gonna have to hang out in this airport for a little while before we start our vacation." It's like, you know, trying to put together a story and figure out what happened. But I think that one of the things that people talked about, you know, and at the time, everybody's like, "That's a crazy amount of money," you know, how you know, how, like Apple never spends money like this, you know, what's the deal? But a lot of the scuttlebutt was that they kind of like viewed Jimmy and Dre as, you know, maybe not like a replacement Steve Jobs, but almost like a piece of the Steve Jobs Voltron that they were going to try to recreate, you know, like Tim Cook would, you know, the, would be the brain and then like Dre and Jimmy would be the heart and somebody else would be the, I don't know, like something like that. They would piece it back together and get these little aspects of Steve and that they thought that Jimmy and Dre could really help out on the marketing side of it. And, you know, I don't know. I, I know that they had kind of like, there was a period of a few years where they were getting paid to hang around and do stuff. And, you know, they did some, I think they did some more commercials and promotion, that kind of thing. But I never got the sense that they really were like, all right, you know, Apple for life. And I think they kind of just, the thing ran its course, you know, they took the last bit of their cash and off they went to do the next thing. But it was interesting, at least that a lot of people really thought that that was kind of like part of the reason why the deal was for such a big number you know, that it was almost like an aqua hire type of situation. Right. And the other big piece of it was the streaming service that they had created at the time. And Apple wanted to get into streaming. They didn't have a streaming service. <laughs> they were starting to develop one. So Beats Music eventually became Apple Music. And then that's how Jimmy became so integral right. with the work there. And I think even by that point, Beats already had some really interesting people I think like Trent Reznor and so forth, who were like deeply involved with it. And I think, you know, part of that was appealing to Apple too, that they felt that, you know, not just the product existed, but that it, you know, that the people existed who could kind of like grow it within Apple and, you know, eventually turn it into, into iTunes, like, you know, Apple music and so forth. Right. Which speaks to that partnership and Jimmy's connections, right? He had been working with Trent since the nine inch nails days. So yeah, exactly. all comes full circle. What do you think is the dark horse move or the dark horse thing that Interscope has that doesn't get talked about as much? So 
mine for this, I actually think it's the longevity that they've had with leadership there, because I think that other record labels, this gets talked about a fair amount, but, and it's true for Interscope, I feel like it just doesn't get talked about in that same way. So since 1990, there's been two people that have been the head of it. So you had Jimmy from what, 89 or 90, the founding until 2014. And then John Janik takes over and he's been there for almost a decade. And then if not more, if you just consider, you know, I think the total time working in the organization. So that's like, you think about other organizations too, whether you look at a team like the Pittsburgh Steelers, there've been two head coaches there since the early nineties. You look at the Green Bay Packers, there's been two quarterbacks that they've had as starters since the early nineties. And those teams have been consistently competitive and you rarely see them getting the first round or the number one draft pick. I think like Mike Tomlin hasn't had a losing season. And in some ways I kind of think about Interscope in that way. Yeah, sure. Every record labels had ups and downs, but these teams that have consistency, especially in an industry like music, where there's so much turnover, so many of these other labels that are their competitors can be revolving doors in this way, which can lead to a lot of challenges for people to really be able to execute a strategy. This is one thing that I think has helped their longevity quite a bit. Yeah, I would say for my dark horse, I would say John Janik specifically. And I think people don't really realize, you know, just like how successful he's been because everybody talks about Jimmy. But, you know, first of all, at this point, John's been there. I mean, he's been running the show for almost 10 years, which is nearly as long as Jimmy was. And, you know, who knows? how much of the time before Jimmy left in 2014, John was actually really, you know, running things on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, the, just like so many times you see a, a visionary founder like Jimmy leave a company and then, you know, the thing just kind of like peters out. But, you know, I mean, under John Janik, you know, look at, you know, like Billy Eilish, for example. I mean, I think Kendrick Lamar was also under his watch. Probably Machine Gun Kelly must have been under his watch too, yeah. And then even like, Olivia Rodrigo more recently. Yeah. I mean, what a huge, you know, like, so th- that's definitely like on the level of, you know, of the biggest acts that Jimmy was able to bring in. And, you know, it's like, you know, even with some of them, it was really more Dre than it was Jimmy. So I think that's, you know, yeah, I think John deserves a lot of credit too. You know, and, and we haven't talked about Lady Gaga, so she's not exactly a dark horse, but, you know, Lady Gaga is somebody who came in under Jimmy, but like, Jimmy should not get credit for Lady Gaga because Agreed. Lady Gaga was kind of like languishing. You she know. was on the bench chilling. And then like, yeah. Like, Akon's the one that's Akon like, hey, along. what about like, her? What about yeah. her? Yeah. And I remember I interviewed him for Forbes. This is back in, you know, 09 or 2010 or something like that. And, and I was like, so tell me the Lady Gaga story. And he said, basically, I heard her stuff and I was like, this is amazing. And I called her up or I called, I think he called maybe Troy Carter who was managing her at the time and said, you know, I want to sign you to my Interscope imprint. And she's like, I'm already on Interscope. So, so they just kind of like moved her around within Interscope and, you know, they were able to, you know, that first song, Just Dance, a lot of people forget that was like, when that came out, Akon was much bigger than Lady Gaga. And, you know, that was at the height of Akon's fame. He's not out there as much now, but he's, you know, he's all over the world making probably even more money than he was back then. But, you know, yeah, he was hosting or appearing on SNL with Lonely Island and all those guys. And, you know, he's kind of like showing up in the back of Just Dance, you know, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, doing his Akon thing. And, you know, it kind of really helped get her off the ground, you know, and then just kind of like 
pieced out <laughs> and Lady Gaga became this incredible uh, superstar. So, you know, I think that's certainly some serendipity for Interscope there. But yeah, I, I wouldn't give J- Jimmy full credit for that one. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Interscope collectively, sure, they had her on the roster. But yeah, that one has to go to Akon on that one, by yeah. extension, yeah. who himself, you know, clearly worked with Interscope and then just give in. Because we didn't even mention him himself, just that whole run he had from like 04 to what, 08, maybe 2010, if you want to go a little bit longer, he was everywhere. Yeah. 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 So, of course, we talked a lot about consistency. We talked a lot about Janik and the role that he's been able to do there. And I think consistency does naturally lead itself going further. So let's flash forward 10 years. Let's go to 2030, 2033. Do we still think that Interscope will be at the level that it is now, where if you look at the market share numbers, it's roughly alternating right around 10% of recorded music, maybe a little bit less, but I feel like it's like them, Republic, and then Columbia alternating to some extent. And it all kind of depends on who releases when, but do you think that changes? Do you think they're more likely to stay there? Or what do you think 10 years from now looks like? Yeah, I think they're going to stay. I mean, it's not like one of these situations where their top artists are leaving or, you know, you're really too concerned about it or they're kind of in the wrong genre mix. I mean, they're really heavy in hip hop. You know, they have some of the biggest stars out right now. I mean, we already talked about Olivia Rodrigo, Kendrick, Billie Eilish, obviously is enormous, Machine Gun Kelly, but you know, they have Blackpink. Yeah. Huge, like that could be a big place for growth. And you got SZA through the TDE deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point, you know, hard to find anybody who's having like a bigger moment than SZA right now. So, you know, there's a lot, let's say that to go back to the sports analogy, it's not like this is a team of like, you know, 38 year olds who are nearing the end, you know, this is like a win now team with plenty of talent in the pipeline. And they've proven that they can keep working the farm system or something to continue the sports metaphor. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, John himself is not an old guy. I mean, John is mid forties. I I forget how old he is. Yeah. So if you're talking, you know, where they're going to be in 2030, I mean, you know, he'll be like in his early fifties and still, I think doing what he's doing and doing it really well. So, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah, I don't really see them fading. And if anything, you know, all it takes is like, you know, like another monster Billie Eilish album in a given year, you know, and they start to gain even a little more market share. So I think they're in a pretty darn good place. And it's arguably one of the best jobs in the recorded music industry because of the amount of leeway that I think Janik and by extension, the Interscope Geffen A&M umbrella is given relative to a lot of the other labels that are either under Universal or even others under the majors in terms of the decision-making, the things that you can do. And when you have that much control based on his relationship with Lucian compared to others, it does make a huge difference. Yeah. And, you know, I think another another guy who's kind of in the background, who's been in the background, you know, for a really long time there is Steve Berman. He's another executive who doesn't get, you know, like a ton of limelight, but, you know, it's kind of like quietly... Like the, the, the consigliere, it's been kind of the consigliere type over the years. And, you know, I think that might be part of the, you know, continuation, the, the connective tissue between Ivan and, and John Janik as well. Right. Good point. Especially just given how important lawyers and they are in terms of the influence and direction of this industry. Another thing that I think is interesting, just thinking about the future, is also looking at the past of Interscope and how this record label did start and rise because of this controversy, because of the pearl clutching business model. Do you think that could work today? Because I have my skepticism, but what are your thoughts? 
I think it depends, you know, what sort of pearl clutching is about, right? I think, you know, in, in many ways, the world is a nicer place than it was in the 90s. Like, you know, things were, were kind of a little rough and tumble in the 90s. And it wasn't as sensitive a time as it is now. You know, I think, I think in general, it's good that, you know, we're like a little nicer, a little more sensitive. But, you know, in other ways, you know, I think sometimes perhaps too much. But, you know, I think that, you know, certainly when it comes to music, I don't know, in a, like this moment, for whatever reason, music isn't at the forefront of the culture wars in the way that it was in the 90s. And, you know, instead it's like books in Florida, right? I mean, who knew? But, you know, people aren't really like kind of, this is not a, like a campaign issue in the same way that it might have been in the 90s. You're not seeing as many politicians sounding off about it. I mean, I think certainly you're hearing stuff about, you know, can lyrics be used as evidence in court, you know, which is can be a really troubling topic. But, you know, I think the sort of focus of that argument is it's not like in the middle of national campaigns in the way that this was in the 1990s. So, right. That's yeah, a good point. I think, you know, like it, it, Interscope certainly has an experience walking the line and it's maybe a little bit less of a delicate line that they need to walk these days for just whatever reasons with the political headwinds. Yeah. I don't think it would work in the same way because I think the people that do try to create shock value, we're so desensitized to things compared to when we were the way things were in the nineties, even for people that weren't that threat to society, but because of how they were depicted, it was easier to do that and still release great music, right? The chronic could be a shock value type of work, but it's still something that is critically acclaimed that is in the National Registry and Library of Congress and all of these other areas. But now the stuff that creates shock value in music, whether it's even someone that's like more on the personality side, like a DJ academics or someone like that will literally just say like, you know, the wildest shit just to go viral or partner with right wing organizations in order to create momentum that still has this area where it lives in somewhere like YouTube, where yes, you can get a following and you can make a living and, you know, do things for yourself. But I think there's somewhat of a ceiling to that in terms of how much you can like create, you know, broader impact and truly monetize the bases and the masses. And some of it even extends to artists as well. Like those, I think someone like NBA Youngboy is quite popular and has had a bit of uh, a number of transgressions in his track record. But still, I think there's a pretty big gap of, you know, him relative to like some of the other names you mentioned just from some of the exposure and opportunities that he's given that doesn't lend itself to that. So, you know, Interscope in the early 90s probably wouldn't have wanted to try to sign Olivia Rodrigo because it didn't make sense, but it makes perfect sense now just given where things are, where things are going. So you can maybe do it on a niche level, but I think it's hard to have shock value sell in mass yeah. quantities for the mainstream in that same way. Well, I think it's also just harder to shock people now, right? I mean, you know, desensitized. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you were to put out the chronic today, you know, with the marijuana leaf on the cover of it, it's like, and, you know, and like, <laughs> this has been legal in California for like how long, you know, exactly. and certainly in terms of like things you could say or do that would be truly shocking. It's like, after Donald Trump has been president and the things, you know, that are kind of came out of that, it's like, you know, I don't really know many things an artist could do that would be more shocking. And in this sort of like, 
hilarious, I don't know if it's hilarious, but this, let's say, ironic juxtaposition, you know, you had Eminem, the king of shock value, like making a track against Donald Trump when he was in office. You know, you have the rappers protesting against the politicians instead of the other way around. So I think we're still as a society been kind of turned on our head, you know, by some of the developments of the past, you know, let's say eight years, eight years plus past decade or so, you know, it's, I guess, in some ways hard for politicians to be complaining so much about music when a lot of the obscenity is coming from them. So, right. And I think too, you were mentioning about how, what, Congress or what the American government can rally against and how so much of the 90s was. I still remember that infamous cover of Snoop Dogg on the cover of Newsweek. And I forget what the title of the magazine was, but it was something along the lines of, oh, this is the greatest threat to America or this is the greatest threat to our country or something like that. Someone could probably pick me and find it or maybe you'll link to it in the show notes. And that's what people were able to get riled up around, right? Now, the biggest thing in music that has gotten anyone on a congressional level or Congress level riled up is Ticketmaster and Live Nation and Taylor right. Swift's tickets, which just shows right. how different things are. People used to be riled up about the content. Now this is a way to try to get at big business or whatever the exact complaint is. So yeah. such a different time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't yeah. agree more. So... We definitely spoke a lot of praise about the current era of where things are with Interscope and the work that Janik has done the past decade. If you were in his shoes, would you be doing anything differently? And I do think that he's done a few things. So you mentioned Blackpink earlier. So there's clearly a way to be able to pivot and move more into music that isn't from the United States. It isn't domestic and you're able to rise there clearly done different types of deals from a flexibility perspective. Some artists do have licensing deals like Olivia Rodrigo will own her masters for the long term, just based on what she's shared about the nature of her contract moving forward. But for him himself, I mean, I think there's other IP things that could be interesting, but mm -hmm. what does the type of things that Jimmy was able to do back in the late 2010 or late 2000s with Beats, like what could that look like or what could that look like for it? Yeah, you know, I think it's a different time. One of the things that's changed so much is over the past few years, I would say it's like it's not quite as cool to be rich anymore. You know, I think sort of the Bernie Sanders movement that sort of like this, right. I remember seeing it at Forbes, you know, when I started out, it was like, woo, like I want to be a billionaire and the Forbes remix. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you had Jay-Z, Diddy and 50 being like, you know, the Forbes, yeah, they put out this Forbes one, two, three billionaire remix, they called it. But, you know, even now, even within the past couple of years, you know, certainly I think the pandemic really crystallized this, but even before that, you know, with sort of like Bernie and that whole, you know, movement, there was this kind of questioning of like, should there even be billionaires? And, you know, I remember starting to see people who you would thought you would have thought would be, you know, jumping to be on the cover of Forbes, just say like, eh, you know, like, I don't want to be seen as crowing about my wealth. So, you know, I think that's a big cultural change and that's post beats, right? That's post, you know, Dr. Dre situation. And, you know, I think that there's certainly a lot of leeway for Interscope still to be entrepreneurial and they've always done that. But I think the challenge for Interscope or for anyone really is like, how can you be entrepreneurial in a way that is sort of like, you know, not necessarily charitable per se, but has some kind of impact, you know, like some kind of impact investing sort of thing. How can you like, make money, but 
you know, drive change at the same time. I think that's sort of like, as we look going forward into the, you know, celebrity earning, you know, celebrity business sphere, I think that's going to be the big question because it's no longer the thing that's just, it's cool to make a bunch of money on some random app or, you know, selling some crypto thing as we've seen. And, you know, you, you can get a lot of blowback. People think you're selling out. People think you're greedy. People don't think you're selling out or greedy just because you're doing something business related. But, you know, I think over the past couple of years, it's become a lot more like, well, you know, is this something that really helps the world? Are you using your money for good? And so I think whatever it is, if it's going to be public facing and, you know, and I think that's the value when you have a stable of celebrities, right, is to do something public facing. It's like, what is this doing to help the world? So, you know, I think there are a lot of ways to take that. But certainly, you know, I think that's a bigger, bigger, bigger component going forward. This is something that has changed in a relatively quick time span. You even think back to the Obama era and just the Obama presidency and just how music was and how people interacted and thought about music. You look at an album like Watch the Throne, which I do think was one of the more popular albums from that decade. Granted, I don't think Jay-Z or Ye are even on the terms or desire to put something like, like that out again. But if they put that out about now, it would not get the same reception. There would be all these think pieces about, oh, here are these two men talking about, you know, their, you know, Hublot watches and other, other bends and all this stuff. And people would be complaining about that in a way where just yeah. as recent as 2011, they were celebrated. Like people like yeah. revered so many of the songs and just the talk about black excellence and wealth. And even some of the conversations around Jay-Z himself as a figure, I know you know this well as probably some of the responses you've gotten over the years when you've talked about Empire State of Mind and how people react to him, statements he's said and stuff like that. And yeah, we're just in a very different spot. And now we're kind of in this space where, yes, people can have commercial success, people, businesses can do it too, but I think it's especially difficult for companies in music because of so much historical context of how people view the record label as the enemy, people view the record label as this. And then even when the topic of the prices potentially raising for some of these streaming services, the number one thing you often hear from fans is, well, I hope that extra dollar or $2 for a potential raise in the streaming service goes back to the artist. And it's like, yes, you, you do eventually want those things, but we're losing the opportunity to talk about the value that these record labels create because of how media disseminates, right? If you talk about, oh, Olivia Rodrigo has a very favorable record deal, no one wants to hear that. But if there's ever a report, oh, Olivia Rodrigo's upset about, you know, Interscope, that thing would be a news topic for five days because that's where we are right now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, so to, to your point, I mean, you mentioned my book, Empire State of Mind, which was this business focused biography I wrote of Jay-Z that came out in 2011. But, you know, it was such a different world back then. And when it came out, you know, the response was basically like, whoa, awesome. Like, this is Jay-Z's blueprint for how to, you know, be a centimillionaire. And this is so cool because now I can apply this to my career. Or I can, you know, learn some lessons from him. And, you know, and there was definitely like a sentiment of people rooting for Jay-Z to become a billionaire. There's a race to a billion. And who's going to get there first? Is it Jay-Z or Diddy or, you know, whoever? And, you know, and then it happened and Jay-Z, you know, crossed the threshold in, I think it was 20, early 2020, something like that. I think late 2019, early 2020 is when we put him in the magazine as a billionaire for Forbes. But even when that, like, by the time that happened, you know, about 10 years later, I put out the billionaire edition of the book after, you know, let's say, what was it, in 2021, 
this was 10 years later, it was a totally different story, right? People were like, why is this guy, you know, like, who cares? Like, you know, it, like he should be giving him all of it back. You know, why are there billionaires in our society? Something's wrong in society that has billionaires. So, you know, and I think it has gone, that narrative has gone even faster than Jay-Z has kind of evolved into this like very socially aware, you know, type of philanthropic mogul, you know, people are not even that into the idea of like, oh, I'll make a lot of money so I can give it back. People are like, just, you know, do the good, like do philanthropic stuff, do impact stuff the whole way through and like, don't even try to become a billionaire. So it really is such a different world. And it's been fascinating to write about this stuff as these attitudes have changed on a broader societal level, for sure. Did you hesitate naming it the billionaire edition, knowing like this would change and seeing things over the years? Well, I had it in mind that it would be a cool thing to do whenever he did become a billionaire, because it was like, it was almost like the realization of a prophecy. It's like, you know, in, in 2011, I sort of like, I'm telling you, he's going to be a billionaire and he's telling you, you know, and it's like, okay, here it is. He's a billionaire. You know, and I, I actually wanted to get like a gilded cover and do the kind of watch the throne type of thing, you know, like embossed gold and all that stuff. But it's not the right era. I mean, like you're saying, it's just not, it's not the era anymore. So, yeah, I did wonder, like, should I kind of like back off of that narrative? But, you know, to go back to the Jimmy Iovine Interscope conversation, it's like whether it's good or bad, it starts a conversation and you want the conversation to start so that people will read the book, you know, and it's not like a bad thing for me if people think it's bad that Jay-Z's a billionaire. It's just a fact. And even since I put out the billionaire edition, he's like more than doubled his net worth, you know, again. So that's just that's just how he operates. And, you know, that's Jay-Z. Yeah. You had to put out something. So much had changed since when you first put that book out. And yeah. this is how, in many ways, the business model of books works when there is something to be able to add that's a refresher new forward based on this one. You had to yeah. do it. So yeah, I think it made sense. But to bring this all full circle with Interscope in this conversation, the last thing we'll dive into is who is the biggest winner, artist, executive, producer, and so on from everything that has happened with Interscope in the past 33 years? Mm, that's a great question. I mean, to me, it's between Jimmy and Dre. But I would probably go with Jimmy because, you know, Dre was going to be a centimillionaire, you know, music legend no matter what. And although Jimmy had done a lot of great work, you know, in the rock world before then, and I'm sure, you know, was very adequately compensated, you know, he wasn't sort of like a, an international business superstar in the way that he became as a result of Interscope. And, you know, Jimmy and Dre both got a lot of money out of it, but... I think Jimmy really got a lot more than he would have otherwise in his prior iteration of his career. And Dre, you know, I mean, Dre has founded a bunch of things, right? And Interscope, you know, obviously he wasn't the founder of Interscope, but, you know, I kind of tie B to Interscope and that whole thing together. So it, Dre had lots of different paths to wealth and so did Jimmy, but I think Dre had more and Jimmy kind of like ultimately got more out of it. Yeah, I think between the two of them, even if... Interscope had said no back in 92 or 91, whenever the initial deal was made. I do think that Dre would have likely found a home. Dre and Shug would have found a home and still been able to do yeah. something similar elsewhere. 
Maybe it would have made the Tupac thing a little bit more challenging, but I think they still would have figured that out too. I don't think the same would necessarily be true for Jimmy though, because if you don't have them, you don't have this. And a lot of this, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this, have likely watched the Defiant Ones, or maybe you've seen Jimmy do a few interviews. I don't know if a lot of that would work, but I think I'll actually take a different approach. I think the person that probably won the most just from a situation perspective, I know we've talked about him a fair amount, but I'll say Janik with this one, because he didn't build this company himself, but... The fact that when it's your time to come up, you have this opportunity to be able to step into, you have this much leeway, this much assets that already work in your favor because we just know how valuable the back catalogs are. You walk into that position and then that has you then, then that just makes it much more easy for you to have things set up because we know how a lot of this stuff is, right? People leave record labels all the time, especially there's an opportunity to go to that next level. And this was before streaming really broke out. So if it wasn't Interscope, it may have been one of the other opportunities that could have opened up. And for him to be able to take that and then continue things for the next decade and then prove that, to our point earlier, this isn't just a one-trick pony. This was able to live beyond and in some ways maybe even operated things a bit more efficiently than Jimmy did as well with some of the recklessness at points from spending too. I do think that there's a case to be made for Janik in terms of how that's been able to help that career too. Yeah, that's a good pick too. Although I think probably if you're going in terms of wealth creation, Jimmy, Jimmy, (laughs) yeah, 100%. You got to give it to Jimmy, but point taken for sure. Yeah. Well, good stuff. This one was fun. I feel like after this, we definitely went on a few different tangents on beats about even one on Apple Music we didn't explore too deeply. And even some of the other record labels here, there's a lot we can dig back into with this one. But for sure. Yeah. Key thing though, controversy can sell, but not in the same way it did in the 90s. Yeah. That's absolutely, absolutely. Well, Zach, been a pleasure as always, man. Thanks, Dan. Have a good one. You too, man.